Hey there, welcome to Your Basket is Empty, a space where I sit down with interesting people in direct consumer e-com and tech. I'm your host, Tim. So this is series two of 2021, and the subject I'll be exploring is something close to my heart, food and drink. Over the next six episodes, I'll sit down with leaders and innovators in the food and drink space to get their state of play, learnings from 2020, and predictions for this year and beyond. On this episode, I chat with Emily Van Poppering, co-founder and CEO at Oddbox, a social enterprise tackling food waste and helping people reduce their impact on the planet by working with farmers to bring excess produce direct to consumers. We discuss the complexities of the food-based subscription model, balancing purpose and profitability, the advantages of being a B Corp, maintaining work-life balance when your co-founder is your life partner, and why we should all be eating more wonky fruit and veg. Before we get into it, quick word from my sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Clavio, Clavio, the ultimate e-commerce marketing platform for email and SMS messaging. Whether you're launching your e-commerce business or taking your brand to the next level, Clavio gives you the tools to get growing faster. That's why it's trusted by over 30,000 e-commerce brands. Build your contact list, send emails that pop, and create marketing moments that build valuable customer relationships over any distance. Get started for free today. Visit clavio.com slash your basket is empty to create your free account. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O.com slash your basket is empty. Enjoy the episode. Emily. Welcome to the podcast. How are you and where are you? I'm uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. Tim. I'm uh, I'm really good. I'm uh, actually in London, in South London. Lovely. Um and we were discussing before that um the sun has finally come out and what a what a different world <laughs> London is. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh it's really nice uh, after the the first lockdown was amazing. Um, because the weather was really nice. This second lockdown has been more of a challenge. Though actually for Hotbox, uh, it's always a bit bittersweet because uh, warm weather means uh, more issues in terms of uh, uh, deliveries to uh, people's door. Okay, I'm going to put a pin on that because I want to discuss that in a little bit. So first off, I want to rewind. And can you give me a little bit of an insight into your journey before Oddbox? So uh, actually my background is not at all in fresh produce. So I'm originally from Northern France and uh, I grew up in the countryside uh, in the middle of the fields. Uh, My dad had a huge veg plot. So very much used to growing uh, seasonal produce and a lot of different fruit and veg. And my grandparents were potato farmers. So I've got a connection to uh, the land and to produce. But uh, then I went to study uh, business and uh, actually um, before coming to the UK, I I, um, spent five years uh, in India working uh, in the corporate sector in finance. And then when I moved to the UK, I worked for uh, uh, in the telecom sector. And actually at that point, uh, I kind of realized that uh, um, I, I wanted to do something with more purpose. And so I moved to the charity sector and worked for an international NGO for uh, for five years uh, before and at the start of uh, funding Outbox. So at what point did Outbox become a thing? I suppose, how did it start? And can you give me a little bit of insight into where you guys are at right now? Yeah, so so we started uh, actually uh, just five years ago, so it's our, our fifth year anniversary, 
And still, uh, when I started Oddbox, I was uh, actually working at uh, Girl Effect, that uh, international NGO. And uh, um, the uh, light bulb moment happened when we were on holiday in Portugal. And when you're on holiday in Southern Europe, you go to the market, the local market to do your shopping. And we were seeing uh, this uh, amazing, kind of really ugly tomatoes, <laughs> amazingly tasty. And, and then that kind of made us question why we just couldn't get uh, such tomatoes and such kind of uh, produce in the UK. Why everything was uh, packaged, uh, looking perfect, but not necessarily uh, very tasty. So uh, just kind of uh, tomatoes in the UK are actually, uh, compared to the ones in Portugal, um, uh, they lack kind of the ripeness that you, you get from uh, them growing with a lot of sun. And uh, so they are usually picked on the ripe. And that's, that was kind of uh, what reminded me that uh, when I came to the UK, actually, I was quite amazed that I could get strawberries in December. Uh, but quite disappointed when I actually tasted them. And uh, so when we uh, came back from Portugal, I started doing some research in the uh, food supply chain, uh, just out of curiosity and interest. And that's when I came across the issue of food waste. And that's when I realized that uh, actually 30% of the food we uh, produce is wasted and never uh, reaches us. And so uh, obviously we waste a lot of food in our own homes because we buy too much and uh, we don't necessarily put a lot of value on food, but uh, then there's a lot which is actually wasted at farm level just because it doesn't meet supermarket specification mm -hmm. or because there's just too much. We're just overproducing everything so that we have availability of everything all the time. Interesting. So, yeah, because from an outsider's perspective, um, and I suppose the term "odd <laughs> box" is 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 part of that. It's the it's the 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 fruit and veg that doesn't meet the kind of aesthetic requirements that a uh, that a supermarket might have. And so you've gone yeah. and got these funny looking tomatoes, or well, what one might consider if you are a kind of standard consumer, <laughs> um, uh, funny looking tomatoes and uh, cucumbers and and uh, a strange looking pumpkin, etc. But it's more than that. It, it's it's just excess as well. I didn't quite understand that. Yeah, it's so, uh, and even when we talk about uh, order, actually, in lots of cases, it doesn't really look odd. It's just uh, too big or too small, or it's just uh, uh, cucumbers which are not perfectly straight uh, and therefore don't uh, fit in the uh, clean uh, clean wrapping machine. So it it's just uh, a lot of the, these standards uh, have been set to make it easier to uh, pack the produce. And uh, you're right, there's also a lot of surplus. So we don't, uh, for us, it's about tackling food waste. Uh, it's not only about uh, odd. <laughs> so just explain to uh, listeners if they don't know like how the actual, I suppose, model works. So, so you, you, you get access to um, this kind of excess capacity and then you get it direct to the consumer. How, how do you guys do that? 
Yeah, so we uh, we actually work directly with fresh produce suppliers, um, and we now so at the start it was only two. Now we work with close to 100 different suppliers, and so we uh, uh, take from them, buy from them the produce which are either order surplus, um, and that they are not able to sell. Uh, we bring that to our uh, co-packer who will. Uh, make uh, so we compose the boxes it's a mix of uh, root and veg and people receive uh, a selection of seasonal produce delivered to their door on a weekly or fortnightly basis and so um, we're very much a supply led model so unlike everyone else in the industry uh, nobody grows for us we just take whatever is uh, surplus uh, or order that's interesting. And so, yeah, going from two suppliers to 100, does that make things slightly easier because you've got a bigger pool of excess, I suppose, stock from a bigger pool of suppliers? Yes, it was a requirement because as much as we want to be supply-led, nobody wants to only eat potatoes every week and have <laughs> a box full of potatoes. So to make sure that we provide some variety, and having access, to, and it's just that uh, there's also so much, uh, so much surplus uh, we can get access to. So, uh, and the reason why we started with two is because uh, actually one of our challenges at the start is that uh, when we only had uh, 20, 30 customers, uh, we just needed a few boxes of uh, apples, a few boxes of potatoes, and uh, a lot of suppliers just didn't want to work with us because it's it just wasn't worth their while got it yeah yeah of course yeah okay so as you scaled then that kind of opened up some doors as well yeah I, I i'm i uh i've got some questions around the operations maybe slightly later but i'm keen to maybe look at the, the team dynamic so like what did the oddbox team look like when you were in those early stages um when you only had the kind of two supplies was was it really small and then what does the team kind of look like now kind of five years on yeah, so, um, so it was, uh, so Deepak, my co-founder and I, um, from the very start, and then um, quite quickly, we recruited um, uh, an intern who's now our head of operations uh, to uh, actually um, manage both the, uh, finding suppliers as well as the actual operations. So yeah, so uh, neither Deepak nor I had experience in fresh produce, he, uh, he actually had run uh, a fruit pack house. So, um, so he, he had a lot more experience than us. And um, so it was just the three of us, I think for the first one and a half year. And then we recruited one more person who was managing uh, customer service and helping on the operations. And after that, um, when we raised a bit of uh, funding, then uh, we started to grow the team, uh, uh, got uh, two, two people in the marketing team. Uh, we're, uh, we've grown really rapidly over the past uh, 15 months uh, with uh, COVID because that accelerated our growth. And we are now a team of uh, 80 people. Wow. And so, yeah, so it's kind of a split between uh, marketing, uh, sourcing and operations, uh, customer happiness, um, tech and data, uh sustainability people and finance there you go wow that's amazing um and i suppose you you, you touched on it 
before i wanted to switch directions slightly back into the kind of the business model and you're a purpose-driven entity right and and it sounds like you took a lot from your time at at ngos and and that kind of was it was a north star for you to 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 sort of either be involved or start a business where purpose was at its core but i'd love to understand how that kind of plays out in reality how do you guys kind of maintain that purpose-driven nature is it is it like that that is the number one thing whenever you're making decisions it's like right is purpose at the heart of this uh or does it get a little bit more um complicated when you're making kind of you know either strategic or 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 sort of short-term decisions so i think like with everything it's always a bit of a balance so uh, in some ways um if we don't make uh, profit, then uh, we can't achieve our mission. So there's a bit of, uh, uh, there's always, so at the core of what we do, it's always around uh, tackling food waste and uh, being supply led. And th- that's uh, some of, uh, that are principles that uh, will always follow and that are non-negotiable. However, there's, um, things like, uh, for example, uh, the last for the last mile delivery. Uh, ideally, we would want to deliver with uh, electric vehicles. However, it's just uh, too expensive. And uh, if we were to pass on the cost of an electric fleet to our customers, um, it, it just wouldn't be attractive uh, and good value for money in terms of our proposition. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so there's always some some compromise like that. But for example, what we uh, we did on that is um, we tried to find an uh, a solution which actually was uh, okay for the uh, for the planet, but was also financially sustainable. Um, and so we deliver overnight. We only deliver once a week in each area, so that we have a lot of density. And instead of having vans. Uh, going from North London to South London, uh, each van will focus on one area on a specific night. And that means that our uh, carbon footprint is limited. And because we deliver overnight, uh, actually, um, there's less time uh, where these vans are waiting, stuck in traffic. Got it, got it, got it. That's really smart. And I'm, I'm curious, uh, just as a slight tangent, <laughs> you mentioned before when we started the podcast about uh, what, what the, 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 the nice weather isn't so good. <laughs> Talk me through that. Why, why is it not um, um, what you guys want in, in Oddbox's case? Yeah, so, uh, so as I mentioned, we are delivering, uh, we are leaving the boxes on people's doorstep. And so uh, it's fresh produce. So uh, produce don't necessarily like uh, um, being in a box uh, in the sun. So it's just a bit more challenging. And that's why uh, delivering overnight is actually a bit better Mm. um, because we don't have the box sitting for uh, eight hours whilst uh, people uh, are in the office. Though Mm. uh, right now it's a bit easier with everyone working from home. But uh, uh, otherwise it's always a bit of a challenge of uh, delivering produce. Yeah, I get it. So you, ter- yeah, you don't want those tomatoes turning into passata on the doorstep. No, I, yeah. I get it. <laughs> so I, I, I mean, following on the kind of like the purpose-driven um, uh, concept there, I, you, you guys are a B Corp, 
and yeah. I, I'm all I, I think the concept is really fascinating and, and I'd love to understand like as a purpose-driven business like how important do you think that sort of accreditation is and does that help you maintain your purpose-driven nature because does it kind of force you by having to be accredited and like uh, maintaining certain criteria um, help you with that strategy yeah so it does so uh so we uh, got to know about B Corp uh, maybe uh, three years ago. And so we've always uh, done, uh, try to do things in the right way without uh, um, uh, thinking that uh, uh, whether it's in line with uh, any specific uh, B Corp standards or any other standards. Uh, however, as, uh, as we were scaling, then uh, uh, people start asking more questions. We are not just uh, a small business anymore. And so, uh, and there's a lot of greenwashing happening in the industry. So actually it's uh, B Corp does have quite a thorough audit of a lot of our practices. And it's not only about the environment, it's also about governance. It's also about how we treat people. Uh, it's So it covers, uh, a lot of aspects, uh, it covers our, we, our relationship with our suppliers. Uh, um, so for us, it was a good way to identify uh, where we were doing well uh, and where we could improve. And uh, in that sense, the become become framework is quite useful because uh, you get uh, certified, but then uh, you need to renew that certification yeah. every three years. And the expectation is that um, we need to improve on our score uh, by in over the next three years. So it's a continuous, looking for continuous improvements. It's not just staying at the same level. And, um, and actually you're also right that um, as, as we're growing and uh, it's it's useful to have uh, that framework, which is so it's in our uh, governance document. Uh, we have to change our articles of association to say that Oddbox uh, uh, is not only for the sole purpose of its shareholders, but its overall stakeholders, and which means uh, its uh, customers, its people, and the planet. Yeah. So it's it much it's much broader than just the shareholders, and um, and the way we've uh, we've actually uh, so we've got a sustainability manager who's uh, responsible for for uh, making sure that we're progressing on our uh, B Corp and sustainability objectives, and everyone at Oddbox has performance objectives, but everyone also has an impact objective mm. and a learning and development objective. So it's fully embedded into uh, everybody's work and everybody's annual objectives. Um, we also have a company-wide bonus scheme, which is tied to uh, some financial metrics, but also uh, customer satisfaction metrics and an impact metrics. Wow. So it sounds like, I mean, you guys are taking this incredibly seriously. Do you think that that's how a brand needs to approach it? If, if you really want to be impact driven, you have to, you know, it has to go really, really deep into the company. I think if, in some ways, every brand or every company now has to do that because uh, 
our, our uh, staff, our customers expect that from us. Mm. So, uh, and that's the reason why uh, people work at Outbox uh, because um, they just don't, they want to uh, to have a positive, positive impact and they want to work for a company who has a positive impact. So I think it's, uh, it's changed, the times have changed when um, you are just working from, for money. I want to switch gears slightly and go back to more of the kind of operational discussion. And so as an outsider, so from a consumer um, perspective, um, the odd box model seems pretty simple to me, right? So I subscribe, I get a box of fruit and veg every week. However, given some of the things you've already said, it doesn't sound like it's that simple internally. So I'd love to understand like where you see complexities in the business and the business model and kind of how you tackle them. Yeah, and you're right. In some ways, it's uh, uh, it's very simple. We don't uh, do anything with uh, the fruit and veg. We just get them, uh, put them in boxes. It's delivered to people's door. And in some way, uh, actually, it's uh, what people like. Uh, that it's it's a simple model. It's easy to uh, to understand. There's not a, uh, a lot of uh, technology or uh, innovation involved in the model. However, uh, because the industry is uh, the fresh produce industry and the food industry is all set up for uh, to be uh, demand driven, then that's uh, the main challenge. That, uh, so there's uh, in fresh produce, uh, there's two class of produce. There's class one and class two. So class one are uh, the class that supermarkets will take. So uh, when they say, uh, so for example, an apple needs to be between uh, uh, 50 and 70 uh, millimeters uh, and anything smaller or bigger uh, is considered as class two. However, class two also covers uh, things which are not uh, good quality, things which are too ripe, not ripe enough. Uh, so the challenge is that uh, when we, especially when we started, there was, um, there, there was very little, uh, so our suppliers didn't necessarily think that consumers wanted mm. uh, produce which were not class one and um, class two because it covers everything. Then we were getting produce which are not necessarily the right quality. So now uh, we're working very closely with our supplier uh, when we onboard them to make sure that um, uh, it's we have specific standards. Our standards are not cosmetic standards, but we still have very strict quality standards. So that's yeah. been really the challenge. And another challenge is that at the start, we thought we could just order one or two boxes of apples and get it delivered to our warehouse. Actually, it didn't work like that. We had to kind of go and first of all, uh, for one or two boxes, nobody was interested in working with us. Plus, we had to do manage all the logistics ourselves. Yeah, that sounds like quite quite undertaking. Um... And and also one of the challenges that uh, because uh, the uh, fruit and veg are not always the same size. When we plan our boxes, uh, we might uh, say we'll put one squash, uh, but then. Uh, um, if we receive a uh, very big squash and we plan uh, to put uh, half a kilo of, of squash, then uh, because we usually order by weight, yep. 
but then we might uh, pack by a uh, number. So there's, there's continuous challenges uh, of uh, kind of this conversion and the fact, and that's why for supermarkets, it's uh, they have this kind of weight and size standards yeah, yeah, because it's a lot easier to pack uh, five apples of 200 grams yeah. like one kilo bag instead of having apples of all kind of uh, sizes yeah there you go so i my, my 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 view on it was a little distorted i suppose i i and maybe there is a an intersection there but my view was that consumers demanded the perfect apple and maybe they do, but there's also a kind of uh, supply chain logistics simplicity, not not from the environment's perspective, but just from a supermarket's perspective, yep. to have only uniform things because then they can fit like in a you know like in a big tray of like eggs, you know, they can just fit in perfectly. But nature yep. or well, the world isn't as as simple as that, unfortunately. Yeah, I don't. And, and you're right, and and uh, uh, supermarket will say it's actually consumers who demand. Uh, uh, perfect looking produce and it's part, partly true so uh, when we shop with our eyes so uh, when uh, you I'm sure uh, like me you would have looked at a, a bag of apple and potentially counted how many apples are in the bag and chosen the bag where there's the highest number of apples so that's why uh, they put always the same number of apples uh, in a bag so that's uh, uh, people don't have to uh, to do that exercise. Uh, so, uh, but it's also because uh, we've been so used to seeing produce a certain way that uh, we don't want it any other way. Yeah, it feels like yeah, we're we're kind of ingrained in that aesthetic desirability and yeah not thinking about maybe some of the stuff that goes behind the scene i feel yeah. i find it a fascinating thing i can just imagine a big long <laughs> so because it's not just for you guys it's not just weight it's the volume so you might have a, a a pumpkin that weighs the right amount but it's some like really long elongated shape and it sticks outside the box and so how yeah. do you kind of handle that yeah no that's that's fascinating um i want to um go back to something we kind of talked about before and that was more of the team but i wanted to focus on kind of yourself and and, and deepak and you're not the first person in fact on this series nor people that i've just chatted to in general to to start a business with your life partner and i find that in itself i mean that's a whole podcast i think but like i'd love to understand from from your perspective like how does that work does it work well where do you see the challenges yeah so actually we started we were colleagues uh, before being together so, so we met, uh, we met in India uh, and worked together. So in some ways, we kind of knew that uh, we could work together. Um, I initially uh, started Outbox, and because it's uh, it's a lot of uh, uh, kind of operational work, lifting bags of fruit and veg, and so uh, Deepak started to be involved a bit, and then a bit more, and then kind of hundred percent. So uh, we, we didn't kind of uh, necessarily uh, think, okay, we're going to start uh, something together. Actually, Deepak had started something else at the same time. Um, and, uh, but the one thing about, uh, so I think it's, uh, it's useful to have a co-founder because uh, you're not at, the, uh, at your highs and lows at the same time. Mm. So there's always one person to um, balance the other, especially at the start uh, when there's uh, continuous challenges um, to uh, keep going. 
it's good to uh, have somebody else's perspective and and be able to say, uh, I think we should do uh, do this, and the other person saying, uh, or oh, maybe we should do it uh, this other way. Um, we uh, we've known each other for uh, over uh, ten years, so we trust each other implicitly. There's no politics, yeah. so in that sense, uh, that's really useful. And uh, we can be quite uh, brutally honest with each other uh, because we've developed uh, you know, that kind of uh, relationship uh, uh, being a couple. And and how did you? decide what roles you would take did you kind of set that before I, and i appreciate that it was more of an organic process so you didn't necessarily decide okay we're going to start this thing together and so literally from the start but the, the roles that you kind of developed is has it been um like premeditated which track you both will take or has that kind of evolved over time i i think because my background was more uh in finance opera and operations uh then i can focus on that at the start, I focused more on the funding. Um, Deepak focused. Uh, so uh, when we start, started, we were doing both B2C and B2B. Deepak focused uh, on the B2B side uh, and uh, a bit more on the marketing at the start. Uh, for a long time, we were just co-founder. And so yeah. there were a lot of things that uh, we would do together or that we could uh, equally do as um, we uh, scale the team. Uh, actually, we thought it was it wasn't useful uh, or kind of for us to be in the same room together all the time. And for the team, uh, it was uh, better for them to have clarity on which one of the two of us uh, would kind of make decisions or needed mm. to be involved in something. Mm, that's very interesting. Um, and I suppose the, uh, this is a, a slight tangential question, but I'd love to understand, do you think that it's made, how has the work relationship sort of benefited or impacted your personal relationship? Does it make you kind of a stronger unit more generally? Yeah, I, so I, I, it's, it might not work for, uh, for everyone because then uh, after that, in terms of, kind of uh, what uh, people call work-life balance, uh, actually we talk about uh, work all the time, uh, but then, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but, but that kind of uh, works for us. Um, and, uh, and yes, uh, in some ways uh, it's brought us closer because uh, we're, we really understand kind of what the other person is doing mm. uh, all the time. Yeah. Uh, however, I think it's also important to kind of, uh, keep uh, a life separate yeah. uh, because otherwise we are. Uh, so even when we walk from home, we walk in two different rooms when we're on calls quite often, uh, we're on uh, two different screens. So we're trying to, uh, we also uh, uh, meet uh, separate friends uh, outside. So we're trying to make sure that uh, outside of work, we don't spend all our time together. Yeah, I suppose you have to sort of be a little bit more conscious about engineering that separation, yeah. which which probably normal um, partners don't necessarily yeah. need to think and, about. And uh, when I've spoken to other um, uh, people who run their business together, sometimes they put rules that after, uh, 8 p.m. 
they don't talk about work. Uh, we've tried that. That's never worked for <laughs> I don't know how that would work. I honestly, I can't see how that, like, it's so difficult because to some degree, I imagine, like, what, what if you've got this amazing idea at 8.05 and you're like, oh, I can't talk to the other person about it. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I, I, I think that it's a really interesting concept. And I, I suppose to some degree, the, like, the the co-founder relationship becomes like that sort of partnership, even if you're not life partners, you know? So it's just interesting to have that kind of additional dynamic to it, you know, mm -hmm. where you spend, you know, additional time outside of your kind of normal workouts. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it works well because uh, even though we've got quite a similar background, then uh, we are thinking about things in quite different ways. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's, that's where uh, it might not uh, work for everyone because we've got different styles, but then uh, a similar background. So uh, if, if it was somebody who, uh, who couldn't understand the way I think, that might make it a bit more difficult. Mm. So I want to sort of, oh, it's your fifth year anniversary. So first yeah. and foremost, like, congratulations. That's amazing. Um, like retrospectively looking back over that time period i'm keen to understand like what what do you see as like the major successes um what do you think have been the big challenges and has there been anything that you think you may have done differently so i think in terms of major uh, successes i think we've built kind of a, a really strong brand and community and i think it's because from the start we've really focused on uh, one thing on food waste. Um, we've not tried to do too many things. So, the, so people are very clear about what we stand for. We've always focused a lot on delivering great customer experience. And so uh, people receive a box of fruit and veg, but in some ways that's not the only thing they receive. Um, because uh, what they get is the ability to do something good for the planet. Uh, we provide them with uh, their impact score on a regular basis so that they know exactly what it means uh, when they rescue a box of produce. We also uh, put a letter in the box which gives, tells them where the produce come from, why they were rejected, uh, and uh, provide them stories of our growers, uh, uh, what are, so uh, we had a hailstorm uh, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, what that means for uh, uh, an apple crop when it's hit by hailstorm, uh, we provide them with recipes and tips, so we, we help people on their sustainability journey, and uh, so, so I think that's, uh, that's something that uh, we've, we've always made sure that uh, the product, uh, the actual fruit and veg were uh, amazing quality, but uh, that uh, it's not the only thing that we provide. Mm. So mm. I think that that uh, that extreme focus on uh, on customer experience and uh, and customer service has been one of our major success. In terms of uh, challenges, um, we've we've tried we've bootstrapped for a long time. Um, in hindsight, uh, we could have raised investment a bit faster. We could have probably recruited, especially in marketing. Um, mm. uh, it wasn't our background. So uh, it took us a bit of time to kind of see the value of uh, recruiting somebody with uh, expert marketing skills. Um, we, 
uh, in some cases, it would have been better to spend a bit more money and get uh, proper expert advice instead of trying to do everything ourselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And and do you do you think now that is, is the fact that you've got the big team? You know, you've got a you know a team with multiple divisions. Is that kind of a result of that kind of learning? Yeah, um, but like uh, every startup, uh, we always feel that uh, uh, even now we're recruiting too late. So, <laughs> <laughs> so there's, a, the there's always feeling. a challenge yeah. of uh, you're you're realizing too late uh, that actually you needed somebody yesterday. Yeah, I mean, you know, as a commercial director at a uh, a managed services business, essentially that's what we make websites. Is I I fully understand that challenge of getting ahead of capacity and and hiring ahead of the curve, and and it's and it's it's incredibly challenging, you know, because you want to hire really good talent, yeah. and then you know budgets always become a thing. So you know, trying to get really good talent which can get offers elsewhere with much bigger companies. And we have mm. this exact challenge all the time. It's really hard to uh, entice people, like really good, good people over. Um, I mean, we've been relatively successful in that, like we can really drive the cultural element and the kind of like learning and growing and being able to make a difference, which I imagine you guys have probably got a very similar yeah. thing when mm. you're hiring. Um, but that, you know, it's, it's still difficult when you've got someone that is offering, you know, one of your candidates or one of your people, yeah. you know, twice as much. <laughs> it's, it's yeah, really that's, that's thing. a challenge uh, that uh, as a small, uh, as a small business, we can't uh, pay as well uh, as uh, big companies. Uh, and, uh, uh, similarly we've, uh, we've kind of, uh, lost people uh, through the recruitment process uh, because actually they decided that, uh, uh, they couldn't take uh, such a huge pay cut, mm. and uh, and recruitment always takes uh, much longer than uh, than what you think. Way longer, way longer. It, yeah, it, I mean that that's that's a whole other podcast that I'd, I'd love to discuss. Yeah. Um, I'm keen to just follow this track of the kind of the reflection point, and just just very quickly, don't want to dwell on it, but just last year, like. What, what what did you see? How did the team adapt? What did you see consumers doing? I'm assuming you, you kind of mentioned a 15 month, you know, acceleration of growth. My my assumption is you saw a lot of adoption, um, acquisition, you know, brand awareness. Is is that kind of how last year played out? Yeah. So actually, um, in terms of so, in it took 25 years for online grocery to be seven. 7% of the total mm -hmm. grocery shopping. Mm -hmm. It took uh, uh, a month uh, to grow uh, to double. So that's kind of the scale. That's quite a statistic, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. No, that's crazy. So and so now it's settled around 10-11% uh, of all grocery shopping is done online. Um, that's that's not going, people are not going to uh, fully go back to only shopping it in store. Uh, there's, uh, there's been a lot of people who uh, didn't think it would work for them, actually realize that uh, uh, it worked pretty well. Um, and uh, what we've seen, especially at the start of the lockdown, is actually people uh, reducing the uh, kind of the food they waste in their own home. So people, uh, because there was uh, there was scarcity of food, uh, people putting more value on uh, on food, um, and uh, hopefully uh, that will remain as well. So a lot more home cooking. Yep. And so for us, that's meant that uh, um, uh, 
in uh, uh, mid-March, uh, we saw our orders uh, uh, double in just a few days, uh, and we actually had to take our website down for three weeks uh, whilst we were uh, uh, working with our uh, uh, packing and delivery partners uh, to scale our operations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and the team uh, was amazing at that time because uh, everybody uh, uh, focused on making the right decision, so trying to kind of respond to that increased demand without compromising um, the, the experience of our existing community. Um, and, and I suppose, like, taking a, a slightly different perspective, looking forward into the future, like, what what are you guys seeing you know what are your predictions for the rest of the year and kind of beyond like do you think that there'll be this kind of continued i suppose digital adoption um by consumers do you think we may see a bit of a plateau like what are you guys predicting so we, we are now seeing uh, a bit of a plateau because obviously with the lockdown release uh, people um uh, eating out more mm -hmm. than uh and, and the warm weather, then uh, obviously there's, uh, there's less people. People are returning a bit more to the, to the store. However, I think uh, uh, COVID has been a step change in terms of the online adoption. So uh, that growth will continue. We always, there's always a, a lot of seasonality um, in, uh, in our business in a sense that uh, January and September are big peak moments so generally with uh, uh, people looking to eat uh, healthy and uh, course, being at, yeah, more yeah, at yeah, home. Yeah. And similarly in September, it's kind of a bit of a back to school, back to habits uh, yeah. effect, where again, after the holidays, uh, good resolutions. So, uh, so there's, there's a part of that. So I think uh, we'll see again uh, in September, uh, actually people who might be going back to the store now, restarting, a lot more of uh, online shopping from September. Mm, yeah, interesting. Um, I'm keen to understand, or I'm curious as to what you'd be doing if you weren't running Oddbox. What 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 would be your other life if this wasn't a thing? Yeah. So uh, so actually, uh, I uh, I am. Um, I used to uh, write kind of, uh, my one year, five year, uh, 10 year plan. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, running my own business was actually never uh, something <laughs> I thought I, I, might, I might be doing. Uh, in, uh, in my ideal uh, life, I actually would be working uh, in microfinance. So it's always been kind of, uh, the, uh, working in the charity sector and uh, doing something with, uh, with purpose. And uh, so, uh, Oddbox uh, associates that, uh, the, uh, so the ability of doing something uh, good for the world and for the planet, uh, and, but also uh, from working in the charity sector, I see the value of uh, um, uh, having uh, a profitable business because people value what they pay for. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And to take a step into the future as we're kind of continuing on uh, this sort of look forward. I, I, I'd love to understand like what does Oddbox look like in 2022 and beyond? Yeah, so uh, last year we started expanding uh, 
uh, outside of London. So we expanded to the Southeast. We were recently expanding to the Midlands, Wales, and Southwest. So um, this year, we are going to continue our nationwide expansion. Um, we're, uh, so uh, we're looking at uh, a few different things uh, later this year and uh, uh, next year in terms of uh, um, we are not able to take all of the odd and surplus produce uh, that uh, our uh, growers have. So uh, how do we take more of their surplus and potentially convert that into longer shelf life uh, uh, product, products that uh, we could offer to our community? Uh, we are looking also at um, in 2020 to 2023, whether uh, we could go outside of the UK, so mm -hmm. uh, expanding to mainland Europe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. Um, we're kind of coming up to the 40-minute mark, so I reckon we'll, we'll kind of, it would be good to sort of wrap it up, and I've got a final question for you. Yep. It's, a, it's the same question I've been asking all my guests in this series, and it's more related to your relationship with food and so i'm posing a question and that is that it's your last supper um and you can either cook at home or you can go out to a restaurant so i want to know what are you are you cooking at home or and if you are what's on the menu or are you going out to a restaurant and what is it and this is obviously very timely given that we can actually do that now yeah so uh so i uh i actually would go out so i am um, i'm i'm a decent cook, but that's not what I love doing uh, to uh, to relax. Got it. Got it. Got it. <laughs> so yes, definitely would go out uh, with uh, with friends, and uh, uh, I love uh, Thai food and uh, and pad Thai. So uh, that would probably be uh, what would be on the menu. Oh, love it! And so, okay. So, where do you do you have a favorite Thai restaurant in London? So actually, it's not a Thai restaurant. It's a vegan restaurant in Earlsfield called Amruta, Amruta Lounge. And they make this uh, amazing uh, vegan peanut, peanut noodle. Wow, that sounds delicious. Okay, yeah, I'm getting the, the Pad Thai vibes from that. Very nice, very nice. Um, all right, Emily, I think we'll draw it to a close there. That was fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me. That was incredibly insightful. Really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot for having me, Tim. There you go. A massive thank you to Emily for joining me. You can check them out at obbox.com. Before I go, a quick word from my sponsor, Clavio, the ultimate e-commerce marketing platform for email and SMS messaging. If you want to learn more, go visit them at clavio.com slash your basket is empty. As always, if you like the episode, please leave a review, subscribe, download, and tell all your mates to do exactly the same. I'll see you next time. Taking notes because I don't like being